Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We've been going through a series on Acts, and um, I've lost count how many weeks now we're in, but we're partway through chapter 6, and um, we come today to the account of Stephen. It covers his trial, it covers his death, and uh, I don't know whether he knew it at the time, but Stephen was set to become the church's first martyr. And interestingly enough, at the same time, we're going to meet another character who will become increasingly important in the life of the early church. And that's Saul. But it's the death of Stephen and the impact that Saul has on that early group of believers that is going to launch the church into its next phase of growth. But we're going to leave that bit for another week. Now, the account of what happened to Stephen is quite lengthy. So rather than read it all up front like we have been doing, what I'm going to do is take it in bite-sized chunks as we go through it. Now, you may or may not remember, but we've actually already met Stephen. I'm getting some blank looks, so I will refresh your memory. Stephen was one of the deacons who was elected to serve on tables following the dispute between the Greek-speaking and the Hebraic-speaking believers about whether their widows were getting a fair share of uh, the money that was for their their support. And so we already know a few things about Stephen. Stephen. It says in Acts 6 verse 3 that he was known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. And that was one of the characteristics that all of those chosen then had to show. But it says he was known to be full of it. It wasn't just that he was full of it, but everyone recognised it in him. And then the passage carries on in verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man for the faith and of the Holy Spirit. So he was full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was full of wisdom. Now, in the context there, that phrase, to be full of, actually means to be under the control. So he was under the control of the Spirit. And now, as we carry on in Acts 6, we read this. I'm starting at verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose. However, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, 
Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So we know that he was a man full of God's grace and power. That's verse 8. He did great wonders, miraculous signs were shown among the people. And he spoke with great insight and wisdom. And now we start to get into the heart of the account really. What this has been telling us is he was a man of God. And the fact that he spoke and opposition started to arise tells us that he was a preacher and a teacher. And the problem was he was to be found preaching Jesus in the synagogue. Now we know that because it says that the opposition firstly came from the leaders of the synagogue because they took exception at what he was teaching. And it says they tried to argue with him. How often do we get that? When you mention the name of Jesus, people start to argue with you. But they found that Stephen had such wisdom that they couldn't win the debate. So instead, they started to do other things. They started to employ underhand methods. The dirty tricks campaign started. It says in verse 11, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Now the truth is, wherever the gospel of Jesus is preached, it is likely to stir up opposition. The same is true today. And as we see the kingdom of God advance in Doncaster, we will face opposition. Some of us may have to face it personally. We may have to face it corporately. But here, the charges that are trumped up to, against him are that his teaching is different from that of the leaders of the synagogue. And I think that's true. It ought to be different from what the leaders of the synagogue were teaching. Because he's looking at things with a fresh pair of eyes. He's looking from a New Testament perspective on things, rather than the Old Testament perspective that they would be teaching from. His view of Moses and the law would have changed. Because he has experienced grace. His view of the temple and the sacrifices would have changed. Because he's come face to face with the Lamb of God. So look at what his accusers say. Verse 
they firstly claim that he has spoken against the law. In verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will change the customs Moses handed down to us. I can, I can believe he said something like that. Because Jesus has changed those things. For we have heard him say, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. They claimed he spoke against the temple. Now it's interesting, almost exactly the same charge was made against Jesus when he appeared on trial in front of the same group of people, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the time. It says in Mark 14, verse 5 onwards, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And then moving on to verse 57. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. Now actually that wasn't what Jesus has said. If you look in John 2 verse 19, what he actually said, referring to his own death and resurrection, was, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And he was referring to his death on the cross and the resurrection that would follow. But it's easy to see how these sorts of comments would stir up the people in Jerusalem. Their very livelihood depended on the temple being there. Many of them would have made money by being money changers or vendors in the courts of the temple. So when they hear rumour that someone is preaching against the temple, preaching against Moses, they'd have been agitated. And then we read in verse 15 of Acts 6, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So in the middle of these accusations, it was actually clear where the favour of God rested. Stephen was radiant, just like Moses had been when he came down from Mount Sinai. And then, as we continue into chapter 7, we have what is the longest recorded defence of Christianity. Although I find it hard to call it a defence. Because Stephen is anything other than defensive. In front of the leaders of the synagogue and the people who are now upset, he launches into a scathing attack. And what he does is very clever. He lets their own history accuse them. Now, he begins 
quite respectfully. It says in the first verse of chapter 7, Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. He begins by addressing them as brothers and fathers. He stresses their shared ancestry. He talks about their shared ancestry from Abraham, their father in the faith. But then, then he moves on. And he goes on to make two very cutting points. The first one is that when you look through Israel's history, they have consistently rejected every deliverer that God sent them. He begins his argument by talking about Joseph. In verse 9 of chapter 7, he, it goes on. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him a ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Cana, bringing great suffering. And our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. When Jacob went down to Egypt... Where, our, where he and our fathers died. What he's stressing is that Joseph had already been picked out by God as a deliverer for Israel from that situation. And what did they do? They sold him as a slave. But still, he becomes their deliverer. And later, on a second occasion, they recognise him for who he was. And he brings God's deliverance to them. And then he carries on. He carries on by talking about Moses. It tells us in verse 20 that he was a beautiful child. It says, at that time... Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. But then if you skip on to verse 25, you find that they rejected Moses. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them. But he did not. 
It was only later they recognised him as a deliverer sent from God. In verse 35 it goes on to explain that. This is the same Moses who they rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And even after they started to recognise that, they turned their back on Moses and the law, the covenant and God himself to worship a golden cow talks about it in verse 40 they told Aaron make us gods who will go before us as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt we don't know what's happened to him that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf they brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honour of what their hands had made and now he moves from being courteous and calling them brothers and fathers from reciting their history and reminding them of what had happened in their past and he effectively says to them and you're doing the same thing you are rejecting God's righteous one it's in verse 51 he says you stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels but have not obeyed it what he's saying is clear he's saying you're no better you're no different to the rest of them you haven't learnt the lesson you're going round the same loop time and time again and you're just going round it again because you have just rejected Jesus and Jesus is the very one that Moses foretold Maybe you will recognise him when it's too late. When he comes back a second time, just like you've recognised the others too late. Now I think that's quite a scathing attack. And this is a man who is on trial. And then he makes another scathing attack on them. He says, Israel has literally made an idol out of the temple. The temple has started to replace God. Now Isaiah taught that God couldn't be localised. He couldn't be kept in a building or put in a box. In Isaiah 66 verse 1 it says, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Our God, Yahweh, as the Jews would call him, is a God who is on the move. He spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was in Egypt with Joseph and he appeared in the desert to Moses. He can't be put in a box. He can't be kept in one place. Yet Israel chose to make a calf. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honour of what their hands had made. Israel chose to build a temple. It's in verse 47 he talks about that. He says, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says. And that's referring back to what Isaiah had said. Now, despite whatever protests were given, the temple, the tabernacle, or for us today, church buildings can easily become human attempts to contain God. But I'll tell you what, the true God cannot be contained. He's not static, he's not local, he's dynamic, he's with his people wherever they may be found. He makes his people wise and merciful, he promises to bring success, he's living and he brings to us the words of life. So Stephen is challenging them. He's saying to them, come on then, who is it who really blasphemes against the law? Who is it who is really the blasphemer against the temple? Is it me with my preaching? Or is it the nation of Israel who seek to limit and idolise God? Who fail to recognise his deliverance when he sends it. You know, in reality, these men were not the brothers and fathers that he called them in verse 2. And, and we know he knew that, because as we've seen, he went on to call them stiff-necked and uncircumcised. And those would be terms of derision that the Jews would have used for the Gentiles. So he's making his contempt to them quite clear. He says they have uncircumcised hearts and uncircumcised ears. He's saying to them, your ears are like Gentiles. You don't listen to God. Your heart doesn't follow God. You might as well be a Gentile. He's told them, in no uncertain terms, that there is no excuse for them. They sold out Joseph. 
They failed to recognize and follow Moses. They don't listen to the prophets. And now they've brushed aside and killed the Christ. Was Stephen really such a challenge to the law that they said? Because I'll tell you what, Jesus is the biggest challenge to the law. He broke the Sabbath. He declared the prohibited foods clean and fit to be eaten. He touched the lepers. He spent time with outcasts and sinners. Was Stephen such a big threat to the temple? I would say Jesus is the biggest threat to the temple. We know he cleansed it and restored it by throwing out the money changers and the traders. But more importantly, he taught that he was the true temple. The place where God and man could meet. And then we see the reaction of the Sanhedrin. In verse 54 it says, When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's almost an Isaiah 6 moment, isn't it? Then I saw the glory of the Lord. And it says, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. It's like when kids don't want to hear something. Na, 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 can't hear you. You know, they, they rushed at him. They didn't want to hear what he was saying. And they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. The courtroom has been turned on its face. The judge and the jury, the Sanhedrin, suddenly are the condemned. The defendant, Stephen, has actually become the prosecutor. 
And the Sanhedrin are so out of control with rage that they drag Stephen from the court and illegally begin to impose a death penalty. They begin to stone him. And then that's that wonderful bit. The heavens open and Stephen sees Jesus at the right hand of God waiting to receive the church's first martyr. And what a death he has. Notice how similar his reaction to death is to Jesus on the cross. He commits his spirit to Jesus. He prays for forgiveness for those who are killing him. And then he falls asleep. And all the while, Israel is maintaining its record because it's rejecting yet another one of God's messengers. And then we have this aside, which will become important later, that Luke records this new person on the scene, Saul. He sees Stephen dies and he approves it. We read that as a result of Stephen's death and the persecution that followed, the church scatters. But unbeknown to the authorities, that is just going to be the backdrop for something else. The next phase of the gospel's progress. And we'll be seeing that over the next few weeks. But that's the story of the church's first martyr. Now, when you try and look at how to bring application to this passage, on a first look, you think, well, the clear application is more for those who oppose Christ and the church than for those of us who are in it. But I want to give you some questions to consider during the week. Because I think there are clear applications for all of us. Do we make the mistakes of Israel? Do we fail to recognise the deliverance that God sends us at times? When we're in difficult situations, when our back is up against the wall, do we spot what God does to give us a way out? Because scripture promises us we will not be put under temptation that we cannot withstand. God will give us a way out. Do we ignore or fail to listen to the prophetic when it comes? Even now, can you remember what David brought this morning? Have you wondered about the application of it? What does it mean for God to be restoring things to his church in that way? What does it mean about us, I think you said, not being left naked? What does that mean? What does that mean for us here? Or was it just an interesting few moments in the time of worship? Yeah. Yeah. 
But do we really listen when God speaks to us? Are we trying to keep God in a container? Do we keep him in a box all week and only open the lid on a Sunday morning? Do we try and keep restrictions on what God can be involved in and what he can't? How about this one? Do we replace God with idols? Have we got our own version of the golden calf? Do we replace God with meetings? Do we replace him with buildings? Do we replace him with the church? Or there's another whole slant. Are we prepared to pay the cost of our faith? Stephen had his back against the wall. But he couldn't deny Christ. That wasn't in him. He couldn't go back on what he believed. And instead of preparing a defence, he gave a scathing attack on his accusers. Are we prepared to pay the cost of our faith? Stephen paid with his life. But are we prepared for persecution, for ridicule, for pain? Or God might even require our very life. We're lucky. We live in a nation at a time where those things aren't prevalent. Ridicule, we get a fair bit of that. But not a lot of persecution, not too much pain, and not an awful lot of death for our faith. But there are those around the world who are not so fortunate. And we need to remember them. We need to support them. We need to pray for them. We need to uphold them. And if God asks us to pay a cost, we need to be prepared to meet it. We need to be like Stephen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.